Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Bossenmeyer with UCI Conversations, and my guest today is Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Willie Banks. Willie came on board at UCI last summer, the summer of 2019, and I believe hit the ground running. You see, his division at UCI employs over 800 full-time staff and over 1,000 student employees. It's comprised of clusters addressing the whole development of UCI students. Some of these clusters include auxiliary services, student life and leadership, and wellness, health, and counseling. And get this, the division is dedicated to transforming the lives of more than 35,000 students attending UCI. Excellent. Please give a warm cyber welcome to Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Willie Banks. Welcome, Willie. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. What a fantastic introduction into student affairs and the world that I get to live and play in on a daily basis. Fantastic. It is great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this for many, many months. So thank you. Let's just start from the top. Where did you grow up? Sure. Well, you know, my story is, um, I don't know that it's unique. It's unique for myself. But I grew up in South Georgia in a small town called Moultrie, Georgia. And it's uh, southwest Georgia near Moultrie and Valdosta and Tifton, about an hour and a half north of Tallahassee, Florida. And I think when I share that piece of my life, I think people are always interested because I don't have a southern accent. But I attribute a lot of that to my mother, who was from Thailand, and my father, he grew up in Moultrie, Georgia, and he was, uh, you know, a black man that went into the service and met my mother in Uban Ratchachani, Thailand, and they've been, they were married for 42 years, and out of that union had three kids, and I'm the middle child, and once my father retired from the military, after 26 years, he retired as a master sergeant, he wanted to go back home, and at that time, my grandmother was still living, and so we went back to Moultrie, and so that's where I grew up. Three little biracial kids and a Thai mother and a black father in the 70s in South Georgia made for interesting times. Yeah. And um, so Tiger Woods, do, do, do I, oh, is yeah. he kind of uh, the same? Uh, he, he is. His, his father was black and um, Tiger Woods' mother is from Thailand. Yeah. That's probably the best example if people need, um, yeah, uh, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it's just interesting. So, yeah, uh, but I don't have the, any sort of money like Tiger Woods, <laughs> nor can I play golf. How do you golf? Swim? Oh, I, I'm horrible, so I don't <laughs> even play. So he okay. has it in completely different ways. So, yeah. Uh, excellent, excellent. So in terms of your upbringing, did you always know that you would go to college or how did that all? You know, I'm a first generation college student and like many of our students that are at UCI, I'm a first generation college student, but I think it was very early on. uh, My parents were very insistent on my education and me being really focused. So early on, I knew I was going to go to college and growing up in South Georgia, I knew that college was going to be the vehicle for me to really expand my horizons and then also for me to see the world, to learn more about myself and to really change my life. Moultrie, Georgia is a small rural farming town. And I remember very early in my life, we would go and we would do things during the summer. Um, We would go and you would go to different farms and many families would go and you'd go and pick different vegetables because then you would take them home and you would shuck peas or shuck the corn and peel all sorts of things and you would can your vegetables for the year. And I remember my father after one, we would get up at like three, either probably three or four o'clock in the morning because you want to get, you wanted to get to the fields early before the sun came out because it's so hot. Mm-hmm. And I remember my dad looked at me and he, he could tell that I was not having the best time. So I'm probably like 
nine or 10. And I'm guessing this, but I remember my dad looked at me and said, son, if you don't enjoy this type of manual labor and and work, you're going to need to get the best education as possible Mm -hmm. because I just don't know that you're cut out to do the manual labor (laughs) and this intense work as far as the manual labor. So very early on, I knew that education for me was going to be the vehicle for me to have a successful career, to really lift myself up, my family. But then also my dad traveled all over the world and he met a lot of different people, all different shades, and then also different beliefs. Very early on, he instilled in us that diversity and having a large group of friends, exploring the world, asking questions was just part of the everyday normal life. I just knew that I was going to go to college and I loved school. And so it was a great way for me to really think about college. Were you traveling, going to these different places around the world, or were you staying? Yeah, so it's interesting because there's a 15-year age difference between my parents. So my mother uh, was quite young, maybe 20 when my when she married. My father was at th- that time and um, was 35 when they got married. But by the time he retired, he had already had 26 years in the service, and I was only maybe six or seven when he retired. Oh, okay. But I was born in Hawaii. My oh. brother was born in Italy. My sister was born in the District of Columbia. And so we traveled for a bit before we moved to South Georgia. We had spent about three or four years in Naples, Italy. That was my dad's last post. And then we went from Naples, Italy to South Georgia. Okay. And so that's always a chuckle because if you've ever been to South Georgia, you if you want to talk about polar opposites, talk about going from Naples, Italy to South Georgia. Yeah. Two completely different worlds. And so it has always been interesting to be able to straddle and remember the experiences of living overseas, yeah. even as a young child. Yeah. But I essentially grew up from the age of seven in yeah. South Georgia until I left for college. Gotcha. Gotcha. How far from Atlanta is that small town? About three and a half hours. So oh, we're okay. talking like deep south. I mean, and we're talking gnats. And like once you cross Macon, you can tell the difference. There's lots of gnats and the humidity. It's just, it's hot. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then, so you're going to go to college. When did you start percolating? Like, what would you major in? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because at one point in time when I was growing up, I think everyone, you know, you think you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer. At one point in time, I think I said I was going to be the president of the United States. Yeah, those things were not realities for me. I enjoyed science, but I did not love science. And so I really started thinking, I think when I went to college, it was very much, I think I'm going to do this. But I changed my major six times, which I don't think is unusual. I went to Mercer University, which is a private liberal arts institution in Macon. And I think that environment allowed me to really explore my interests and try to figure out what was a good fit for me. And so I ended up becoming a communications public relations major. And at one point in time, before I discovered student affairs, I thought I was going to actually work for an advertising firm or a marketing firm and produce large-scale events and do um, public relations at a corporate level. So, yeah. Gotcha. So you came out of college with your undergrad degree. Correct. Did you go to work or did you keep going to school? No, I I went straight to graduate school because in in the field of student affairs, most entry-level positions, you need your master's. And so I didn't even understand what the field of student affairs was or is until I was in college. It's interesting, as I was going through your bio, 
I didn't either. You know, it's like when you're young, you don't even really realize that it's a position. And, yeah, yeah. And it's a huge position. Too. It is. But the, the reality is, is that there are not institutions. There are not a lot of institutions that have an undergraduate major in student yeah. affairs. <laughs> right. um, but the reality is, is when you talk to student affairs professionals, so many of us fell into the career and fell into the field. And because I was an involved student leader, so I was involved in student government. I was involved with the programming board. I did tours around campus. I worked in admissions doing data entry. I worked in the student center and was a, a building manager and managed the student center. Mm -hmm. So I did a whole host of things outside of the classroom. And typically that's what happens is that the student affairs professionals that you talk to, they were RAs. They were involved in, in campus life. And once they find out that this is an option, and then all of a sudden they make this switch in their mind like, Oh, I don't have to do corporate America. I don't have to, I can stay in college. I can work on a college campus. And then they jump at that opportunity. But it, for me, it was just a natural fit because I grew so much during my time at Mercer. I discovered myself who I am and really figuring out what was passionate for me. And for me, I think that's really important for our students to really decide what makes them happy. What are they passionate about? And being a doctor or a lawyer, while it's great, that was not going to be my passion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations with Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Willie Banks. Willie now discusses his transition from going to school for a college degree to becoming a college administrator. Now back to the interview. So your career, a big part of your career around <coughs> 1990 to 2010, University of Georgia, is that where yes. you went to work right away out of school? Yeah, or? I finished my undergrad degree at Mercer in 93 and then started graduate school in 93 to 95 at the University of Georgia and then was at the University of Georgia from 1995 and until 2011. And that included two degrees, my master's and then my PhD and a variety of positions. And that was my professional home, I mean, uh, for a very long time because 18 years there, oh. you learn a lot. You learn so much about higher education, but then also being at a flagship research one institution in the South. Um, what does that mean um, as far as resources, but then also the complexities, the bureaucracy of higher education. And then after I left UGA, I went to Cleveland State for three and a half years, Indiana State for four years, and now at UCI. Mm. And so I think all of those positions have really prepared me for this role as the Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs here at UCI, because it's almost a culmination of all those experiences in one type of institution. Because UCI, Research One Institution, a large complex structure, 36,000 students, but then also a newer campus, very similar. It was founded in 1965, um, Cleveland State, when I went to work there, they were founded in 1965. So there were a lot of similarities mm -hmm. and that has really helped me and prepared me for this position. Excellent. So, well, first of all, how did you find out about the position? Some colleagues nominated me for this position. You know, I, I think as I was growing up, I never imagined myself living in California or working in California. I have friends who've li always lived here. Um, I've known people who've worked in the California system, but I never knew that. I mean, I'm not one of those people that has a vision board that says I will be X, Y, and Z by this time. 
while I think that's great for some people, I just don't operate that way because I do think you have to be present and really think about those experiences. And hopefully that some doors will open and the opportunities will present themselves where you can walk through and decide if this is the right opportunity. Nothing against the vision board. So I don't want anyone listening to think there's n- there's absolutely nothing wrong with vision boards. But I was looking for a new opportunity. I had spent four years at Indiana State, which um, I have a lot of love and respect for the people at Indiana State. Um, the Sycamores, uh, I grew up, that was my first vice president position. And I learned a heck of a lot there and had the opportunity to work with some great professionals and some great presidents and had some great colleagues and some great students. But I knew that I don't know that I was the Midwest type of guy after having spent seven and a half years battling the snow and the ice and the cold weather. For me, I need the sun on a regular basis. And in the Midwest, if anyone is listening from the Midwest, they will know (laughs) that the sun sort of disappears around September, October and doesn't come back out on a regular basis, probably until like March or April, if we're lucky. And so I, when I was thinking about my next opportunity and I'd spent four years at Indiana State, I was really thinking about, I'm going to be very specific about my career. Because like many young professionals, you need the experience, you need to different institution types, and sometimes you have to move out to move up. That's a lot of times what we were told in the classroom. If you want to move up in your career, sometimes you're going to have to move out. And that means to some places that may not be as glamorous as Irvine, California. So I feel like I had done that. And so at some point in time within my career, you know, sometimes you have the great job, but you're not in the best environment personally, or you have a great location personally, but the job is not the best. Mm-hmm. And so this job cycle, this last time when I was looking, I was really hoping that after 23, 24 years in the field, that I was going to be able to find the right job in the right location. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that just takes time. And I don't think that everyone fully understands and appreciates that once you come out of graduate school, that doesn't instantaneously happen. Right. There's going to be right. some give and take. Right. And so for me, after 23, 24 years, I said my I crossed my fingers and, and, and said my prayers that let's hope my next job is in a place that I really want to be. Mm-hmm. And then also at an institution that's really fantastic. And I can grow personally as well, because I do think it's important that people are happy personally, mm-hmm. because I think it affects their, their professional life as well. Mm-hmm. And so someone had nominated me. And so UCI, I'd heard of the Anteaters, um, but it really wasn't like, oh, I'm going to end up at UCI. And once I was sent the job description and I spoke to the recruiter, I decided to throw my name in the hat. This was, you know, I'd applied for another job before and was a finalist, didn't get that job, was heartbroken. And so I had to really think long and hard about, do I want to go through this process again? Mm-hmm. Because um, for those of those folks who've gone through a job process, uh, it takes a, it's a, it's a lot of energy and it takes um, a lot of emotional time and energy and strength to make it through because you're putting yourself out there. And so I made the decision to throw my name into the, to the ring and just see what, ha- what happens. And so now I'm here. And so it worked out. Yeah. 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 Very good. Well, before we leave the Midwest, yes. rock and roll hall of fame, thumbs up or just neutral on it? No. So let me tell you, I think no thumbs up. And here's the thing that I will say. I think Cleveland is a great city. It was a great city. I had lived in Athens, Georgia for 18 plus years. Athens is the best college town in the world. I will go toe to toe with anyone who, who wants to dispute that fact. I know that there are Carolina fans out there that love Chapel Hill. I know the UVA people love Charlottesville. You know, 
But when I think about the quintessential college town, yeah. I will say Athens, Georgia is it. But after 18 years, I wanted to live somewhere that was completely different. And when I got to Cleveland, Ohio, it was the best fit for me because I got to live downtown. I was in a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment for $1,200. Wow. I could see, yeah. I could walk to the queue at that point. It's now like mortgage or something. I can't remember the, yeah. the queue, queue's new name, but I could walk to sporting events. I was there after LeBron left, but then when he came back, the food scene wow. in Cleveland was great. The so art you, scene. You were there for the Cavaliers championship? Yeah. Uh, I, no, I had just left. Oh, okay. But I got to see Kevin Love play, Kyrie yeah, Irvin, yeah, yeah, and yeah, LeBron yeah. James play, and that was one on my bucket list before I moved to Indiana. Yeah. So I. It was fantastic. And so yeah. people, the only thing about Cleveland is just cold. And like I learned about lake effects now and wind chills. And yeah. um, it was cold and brutal. But I lived downtown. I was in the best shape because I walked to work every day and walked back. Yeah. It was a great place to be. Yeah. And it's, a, I mean, arts, entertainment, food, yeah. met some great people. Yeah. So people should not sleep on Cleveland. It's a good place. Good, good, cool, cool. And, and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you... It's, oh, it's I went pre- to. Pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. neat. Oh, it's pretty neat. And yeah. I think it's a great... Th- I mean, people should not sleep on Cleveland. Mm, okay. I think Cleveland's a great place, yeah. and I think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is great, too. Yeah, yeah, cool. Very yeah. cool. And, and the University of Georgia is... that's. I didn't realize that's in Athens. Yes, Athens. So is, is Go that, dogs. Is that... Um, college environment have you been to boulder uh, i have not been to uc boulder uh, that, i have not that is like kind of the quintessential you know college town yeah. that uh, I, I get the impression they're 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 similar yeah and the college town you know when i talk about the college town and those folks who are at these large research institutions where everything is really centered around that right. institution right. and at university of georgia you could walk across the street and you could probably there are more bars and restaurants like 90 or 100 than churches like right across the street from campus but everything really centered around the institution i mean a large football program is a power five school athletics reigned large but also academically it's a top public institution it's a really good place and so that's home where that's where my mother is my brother and his family still live there it's a great place yeah yeah excellent excellent so you know, you heard about UCI, and it's like you had you been here before? Oh no, oh, oh, I've okay. been to San Diego. Okay, I'd been to LA, but I had not really. Been, and I've been to Anaheim and to Disneyland, right. but never really explored Irvine and Orange County. Yeah, I've had the pleasure and the awe of watching UCI. Go. I've been here. Well, I grew up in the city of Orange, but also lived across the street starting in like 1980. So there was like one signal on campus and no parking structures and just to watch this unbelievable exponential growth has been unbelievable and i just see it continuing yeah especially with the brilliant future campaign absolutely we can get into in a little bit so so how long did the process take when you first heard about it to interviewing and and, and coming so i i think i heard about the position and i was nominated by november and i had to submit my materials by december at some point in time, and I didn't have a airport interview until, oh goodness gracious, until February or March, and then didn't get an official offer until April, and then started here in mid-July. So it was a long process, but that's not unusual for higher ed positions, especially student affairs positions. Right. Sometimes they're just long and drawn out. Gotcha. You are listening to UCI Conversations with Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest is new Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Willie Banks. Here he talks about being brand new and acclimating to the land of blue and gold. 
when you were brand new, what's that like to come to a large institution? You have 35, 36,000 students. You have over 800 full-time Yeah, 800, like 900 yeah, now. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how do you get your arms around that? Well, you know, I think my experience at Georgia really helped me understand the complexities of an institution of this size. And so it was not very foreign for me. So me coming in my first day, I didn't feel overwhelmed by the size or the scope of the position or the people because it's very similar type work that's happening here and across the country. And I think my experience at Indiana State really prepared me to what it means to be a vice president or a vice chancellor and to serve on the chancellor's cabinet, to be in a senior leadership position. So I felt good about it. I think the hardest part is like you're just learning the culture and it's hard to you're trying to remember people and you're trying to remember their names and you're trying to remember (laughs) how the the organization is structured. Those are the hard parts because you're meeting so many people on a regular basis. It's almost like you want playing cards with people's names and faces just so you can keep up with, okay, they're in academic affairs. They're in teaching and learning. This is this person. This is their position. And for me, this is my 25th year in higher education. So I understand the general structure of institution. You don't have to tell me what a chancellor does or a provost or the CFO or public affairs or general counsel because I've been in the the institution or just in the game for so long. Those are some basics. It's really about the culture. It's really about how are people connected? Where's the the power? Um, Who's making decisions? Where are the resources? Those are the things that you have to find out, Mm -hmm. but it just takes time. Mm -hmm. Is it distinct between your last position and UCI in terms of culture. You know, can you define that or is it, it's difficult to define. You just no. have to get into it. No, it, no, it's easier to define. Oh, oh, yeah. oh please. Can you, can you, def- is that possible to? <laughs> well, yes, because describe it? it is because my, my institution, it was Sounds half like the size. Sounds like it's very definitive. It is. Indiana State only had about 13,000 students. Um, the entire division of student affairs was around 150 students. I mean, 150 full-time staff and about, I mean, maybe three, 400 student workers. And so the size and scope of the programming and the budget is much smaller to what I'm walking into now, uh, where we have close to 900 full-time employees and almost 2,000 student employees. And our portfolio is quite large and the scope, um, but very similar types of work. The other pieces is that, you know, situationally as far as where institutions are situated in parts of the country where we're looking at institutions in the Midwest and certain parts of the South and Northeast are struggling for enrollment growth coming here that is not an issue being in California but I have a number of colleagues from across the country that are facing serious budget concerns because of um, population decline and being in Indiana and at Indiana State there was discussions about the decline in enrollment and um, so much of that is due to people are not having children and right. the population is declining. Right. So it's very interesting to go from that environment and then also the scarcity of resources in certain parts of the country and then coming to California where their resources are much more abundant, but it's all relative. Yeah. So there are some definitive differences being in the Midwest at an Indiana State versus a UCI. Mm-hmm. Both great institutions, but they have their own different struggles. And I think not even using Indiana State, every institution has their own struggles in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Even for UC and UCI, are you starting to look at the long term in terms of potential declining enrollment and academia's changing and evolving with yeah. technology? 
are you starting to address that yet or are you starting to think about that Please. Well, I think that I, I don't know that you ever stop thinking about that. Now, I think that we're very fortunate, and I think that I use my experiences at Cleveland State, Indiana State, at UGA, coming to UCI with always the lens of thinking that not every institution is in the situation that UCI is, where we have record enrollment, a number of applicants trying to get into this institution. But I think the more important role for these institutions is really looking at how do we graduate and make sure that these students re receive their degree and go on and become productive citizens. And also, we have to look at affordability, and we have to look at the cost of attending college, and that's no matter where you are. I think that will be one of the driving factors for a lot of higher education is are we pricing ourselves out? What happens with the delivery of information? And how do we talk to our students? And how do we teach our students and prepare them to go into the real world? So it's always in the forefront of our mind because the, the reality is, is that if your enrollment is declining, then that means you're going to have to look at who's filling the beds in your residence halls, who are buying the meal plans. There is a ripple effect. If your enrollment decreases, you're going to see declines in budget and then also revenue. And so it has massive effect on the institution. So I think we're very fortunate at UCI that we have record enrollment, that people want to come here. But I do think about my colleagues in other parts of the country at other types of institutions, small private liberal arts institutions. Every person counts. Every person, they need that yield. They need to make sure that they get every person to pay some tuition because that's what their budgets are built on. So we're always thinking about that, but I don't know that the sense of urgency is the same here as it is at other parts of the country. And I can say that because I've been in other parts of the country and this is my fourth institution where there are institutions that really think about what happens if we don't get our budget numbers and we don't have the size of the class that we have built our budget off of. Those are real discussions that have to happen because that's real life. We're talking about jobs. We're talking about people. Mm -hmm. Does your department, do you have a budget? And can you talk about that at all? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we do have a budget and we have um, funds that are coming from the state, but then also a lot of our revenue and our budget are built off of auxiliary dollars and it's self-generated. So an operation like our dining program, or our residence halls, where we charge rent or a room and board fees, that feeds into our budget and that helps supports the operation of the unit. What's important to understand though is that it's not, in my mindset, it's not about, we're not trying to make as much money as possible. It's about sustaining the program that we have and enhancing the program for our students, but that comes at a cost. And so if we're not getting support from either the state or private dollars, we also have to look at how much we're charging our students because the reality is you can't charge students because they're already we're already having lots of discussing about living wages and the cost of higher education and affordability so you can't present to students to say you need to pay x amount of dollars for the service which really should be a part of the institution's responsibility mm -hmm. so there's a, a fine balance as far as how do you manage those budgets mm -hmm. how do you really generate revenue to support other enterprises within your unit because there's a finite amount of money. And as I tell people all the time, there is not a money tree in Aldridge Park where I can just go and just freely pick money to do programs. So we have to be creative. You have to think about partnerships. You have to think about being an entrepreneur and are there ways to maximize your product and to generate some revenue. Mm -hmm. Do you have staff meetings in terms of direct reports? Is it two dozen people? Is it 
half a dozen people. Can you describe it like that? Sure. And, yeah. And, and what are the major components? What are the major clusters? Yeah. Your, so you mentioned the three clusters, but I do have staff meetings. I have individual one-on-one meetings with my direct reports um, every other week. And then I have a cabinet meeting. I'm doing air quotes for the cyber people. A cabinet meeting where I have the people that report directly to myself. And we sit around and we talk about what are the issues coming up. But then also it's information sharing, but then also strategizing and really thinking about what are some of the issues that we're going to have to deal with and face. I will share with you some of the things that we talk about at the meetings um, relate to the budget. Um, What are we looking like as as far as budget projections and planning for the next year? What positions do we need? What are the priorities for the division moving forward? But then also we talk about real substantive issues related to the student life experience, everything from mental health, the upcoming 2020 elections and what type of issues may arise on our campuses, I mean, regarding everything from protests. Once the Democratic nominee is announced, what will that look like for elections? What will that look like for our campus? If they're going to be campus protests, I mean, so we talk about those issues. We also talk about what programs we're having for our students related to leadership development and how we're connected to the academic mission of the institution, how we're supporting that, and what can we do as student affairs to help make sure that our academic partners understand the importance of student affairs and really developing the whole student. So our conversations and our meetings, there's some information stuff. There's some discussion about HR and human resources and personnel. There's discussions about budget personnel, but there's also some forecasting and projection and also some visioning as far as what do we want our division to look like. Mm-hmm. In terms of your wide breadth of your career, can you talk about what's been the biggest adversity event or the biggest you know thing that's like, whoa, didn't see this coming, and boy, that was a big deal that we had to get through. Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, you know, I think about, you know, I remember being in the student center at the University of Georgia when 9-11 happened, and really dealing with, it's really a lot of some of the national issues that you just have zero control over, Mm -hmm. national or international issues, and how it affects your student body. And I would say that a lot of the Adversity really is related to how do you help students manage and really think about these issues that are happening in the world. I will say 9-11 is a great example. Um, There's a lot of pain. We lost at University of Georgia. There were a number of people who ended up perishing, alums from the institution, and students who were just terrified because it was it's a new chapter in the world mm-hmm. as far as terrorism and then also the amount of people and lives lost. I mean, that was really interesting to be on a college campus and really understanding what was going on. More recently, I will say the election from 2000 and. 16? 16, 16, maybe, yeah. um, being at Indiana State and seeing some of our students react to that. Some of the more recent developments around DACA and really um, some of our undocumented students really dealing with feelings of being marginalized. Those are real things. Also in Ferguson and Black Lives Matter, being at Indiana State, those are real issues that affect the college campus. And so when I think about when you talk about adversity, it's those national, international issues that show up on the college campus in some, in a different way that part of our responsibility is to really think about how do we help our students manage and also cope and strategize and survive those instances. Because unfortunately, as we know, life continues to happen. And so this will not be the first or the last, but I think we have to do a job, a really good job of preparing students to learning how to cope with those, those, those horrible instances. Mm-hmm. It's tough. 
It's tough because we can talk about it from an academic perspective, but the reality is is that we have to talk about it from an emotional state, a really a place of we acknowledge your feelings and hear what you're saying, but what are we going to have to do to make sure that you make it to that next step so you can become a better person and hopefully change the world? Mm. Have you dealt with protests, with you know significant protests on any of your campus? Oh, campuses? yeah. I mean, and it's different for every campus. And the reality is is that you know, I, I share the story. When I was at Cleveland State, they would have a street preacher come to campus and try to engage with our students. And the flavor of Cleveland State, it was a heavy commuter institution and not a large residential population. We didn't have a lot of students living on campus at the point in time. And so the street preachers would come and I would see them from my window and they would try to engage with people. And that's part of the thing. Right. They want engagement. They want people to yell and to talk back and to have these conversations so they can talk about the exchange of ideas. I mean, and that's what college is about. You're supposed to learn and hear different types of ideas. And some people do it in different ways. But it was interesting because at Cleveland State, they try to engage with the student body and the student body just wasn't hearing it. Now, it could have been just because it was freezing outside and the students <laughs> were trying to get to class and they're just not paying attention. But I noticed that after a couple of days, the the street preachers left because no one would engage with them versus like being at the at the University of Georgia where there were massive protests, especially around the anti-abortion and they would have massive displays and would have to be cordoned off and we'd have to send out announcements to people and help people understand why they were allowed because they followed every rule and regulation to reserve the space and there would be counter protests. And so it was really part of our responsibility to help people understand, especially students, why some of those ideas that they may not believe in um, have a really a place, especially the First Amendment and really talking about those issues. Mm -hmm. So it's been interesting. So everything from there have been protests on campuses around Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and seeing all those types of things. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Very good. How about since you've come to UCI, any surprises that have just come up? Huh. You know, I, I think one of the biggest surprises, people ask me that, I think what I'm really surprised about is that we have so many great resources and the diversity of the student body is pretty amazing, especially as opposed to other parts of the country. I think it's interesting, especially, and I'll say this to the, my Asian side, having the number, the heavy Asian population here on campus has been very surprising. And then also being on Ring Road and then also how intense our students are. And I think that I knew students were really focused, but they're really focused here. And I think that's a, a great surprise. The other thing that I would say is really surprising. And, you know, I think it's just depends on the students and the student culture, what their priorities are and what they're focused on. And I think that's really great. The other surprise is, is that being part of the UC system, how much influence other campuses and the university system may have on some of the decisions and then also how our students react to certain things. Because I think it's very interesting that our students are so connected to the other um, nine campuses that make up the UC system. Mm. So that was surprising. I didn't understand like how that really will play out. Yeah. I mean, I've been a part of the university system of Georgia, but you know. Is that multi-location? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, but it was, I mean, it was like, I think university system of Georgia, I mean, like 20 or 30 campuses, oh, wow. I mean, different institutions. Yeah. But, you know, the University of Georgia was sort of the lead. And so now being at UCI, so much of our students, they're always in, in talking to the AS, um, the associated students from the different campuses. Oh, so okay. they're all connected, which is a really interesting way to really think about issues and also issues that come up to the board level. So mm -hmm. it's been interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you have 
much interaction with your counterparts in the other UC I do, which is interesting because we actually have a monthly phone call and we meet at least twice a year face-to-face. And I think it's been interesting because every campus, even within the UC system, has their own distinct culture, flavor, um, characteristics. And so I would say there's no two campuses that are alike. Like Merced is very different from UCI versus uh, UC Santa Barbara, a San Diego, a Berkeley, yeah. um, a Davis. I mean, it's been very interesting to try to learn and figure out the different personalities. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. What is on your plate right now that you can talk about? Whether it's something that really excites you yeah. or something that's gotten your attention? I will share because people have asked this question. And I will say the leadership and also the division of student affairs here. Um, have done a fantastic job. And this walking into this position, it was not a position where um, you're given the edict like you really need to do some cleaning up of things. That is not unusual if you walk into um, senior level positions in a division that may need some help (laughs) Mm -hmm. and some coaxing Mm -hmm. and to look at a new direction of how to operate. That was not the case here. There might be some minor tweaks as far as organizationally how we're structured, but for the most part, this organization is a really strong organization. And we're going to take a look at some tweaks as far as how we're situated, but it's not major tweaks. Where I've been at other institutions where it's really rebuilding morale and really, you know, everybody has been in the forest and they're on different paths. And here it is very much everybody understands the path is really student success and graduation and retention and really enhancing the student experience. So that has been wonderful. But there are some things that we have to focus on. And what I have noticed in my short time here is that we are so large, that we are so decentralized, that sometimes people do things on their own and that we're going to really have to talk about how do we centralize (laughs) things to make the student experience a little bit more enhanced because I I, I like to share cohesive or more cohesive, uh, but then also, you know, there is, there are some benefits to centralizing some things. I I will say that, you know, when you think about a fast food chain, um, no matter where you are, even internationally, if you want a burger from a fast food restaurant if you're across the country or in another part of the world, if it has that brand, you expect that it's going to have two pickles, ketchup and mustard, <laughs> those types of things cooked a certain way. But if you don't have that standard or that, you know, this is the way we, this is our standard, right. then there's, you can get a hodgepodge of things. What I've discovered is depending on the student and where they're coming into the institution, depending on if what, whichever school they're in, their access to information, how they navigate the institution could be a little different. Mm-hmm. And it's almost different for every person. And so what we have to do as an institution is centralize some really basic services and really talk about these are some things that are just expected within housing. Everyone should have this type of experience being able to move in. Even some infrastructure pieces is like access to certain buildings that are within student affairs. One community shouldn't use a key card if the other community is using physical keys or versus an ID. So there's some opportunities for us to really think about how do we centralize things? How do we maximize our efficiencies and really talk about the student experience? So we're working on some things, but it's all behind the scenes infrastructure things. So if anyone's listening and expecting some grand, like flashy, like we're going to do X, Y, and Z, it's all behind the scenes things. But it's so important to actually make sure that your infrastructure is strong and also can support the growth of the institution and the division. And I think that we're doing okay, but we we can strengthen that. Do you feel like you have your arms around the campus? Have you been, you know, are you still 
exploring. It's like, oh, I have to get over here. I have to go over there. Or, or you know, is that stage over with? Well, it's still ongoing because yeah. I, I'll be yeah. honest with you. I think my onboarding, I mean, while I have met with all the deans, this institution is so large that I don't, there are still people that I will continue to meet. Yeah. I, I mean, there are people within the division that don't know that they're in the same division because we are a massive enterprise. And so um, I don't know that it's realistic for me to say that within six months that I was going to be able to meet with every single person. But I have been able to meet with almost all the deans and understand some of the major players within the institution and the divisions. So that has happened. Mm-hmm. It'll be ongoing because there are places that I didn't even know exist. I didn't know that this KUCI, KUCI right. I actually had to have a student bring me here today. I probably would have been circling Ring Road for hours trying to find this location. I was concerned about that because yeah. <laughs> it's such, it's just kind of in this nook out of the way. Yes. And yeah. so the thing is, is that that will take years. I mean, honestly, right. because right. our campus is so large to figure out the nooks and crannies, you know, who, where is a certain building? There are 13 schools. It'll just take time right. to remember right. Right. which majors are part of which school. Right. right. Can you talk a little bit about the Brilliant Future campaign? Sure. Well, you know, I think, one, I I feel like I am so lucky to be part of UCI at this point in time in its history. I think it says a lot about an institution that was just founded in 1965 to be a top 10 public institution, to have the research dollars, to be part of the AAU, and then also to embark on a $2 billion campaign. One that speaks volumes about the commitment from not only the community, but also the alumni and to the future growth of this institution. And then also, I think it speaks to the level of importance this institution plays to not only the local economy, but the state economy and the world economy, and then also the curation of knowledge. And so I think it's a great campaign. It's For me, I'm brand new within six months, and I'm interested to see how we're going to pull this all off. I'm trusting my colleagues in development to help lead the way. Um, But it's everyone's responsibility to really engage with our alumni and to talk about the possibilities and then also the opportunities to really make a stamp on UCI and its growth in the future. One of the biggest initiatives that we have with Student Affairs is the Student Success Building, a Student Success Success Center that will house our Disability Center testing, counseling, and then also we'll have like our Veteran Center in there as well, and also the Care Office, Graduate Division. There's going to be a whole host of things. I also believe like the Career Pathways. So there's going to be a lot of synergy from not only Student Affairs, but then also academic units, and then also Division of Career Pathways in this one space to really talk about the student success. And I think that's a great opportunity, but we need our alums and people that have some care and want some responsibility and want to contribute to really changing the lives of our students. And they, they have to step up, but we also have to make sure the, to share with them our story and the importance of really giving back and making this lasting impact on our students today. So the Student Success Center still has to be built? Is that is Correct, that, correct. Oh, and, yeah. and where would it be? Do we know yet? Or? It is the location where um, I believe it is going to be right across from the learning, the anteater learning pavilion. Oh, okay. In the greenhouse base. The, okay. That's that's what I heard yes. something was going to go there. I didn't yes, know what. Yes, yes, Okay. Yes. Gotcha. I don't think that information is embargoed, so I don't think I'm revealing like state secrets. So, <laughs> I'm sure you'll let me know. Uh, yes. <laughs> How about um, any landmark moment? Did you, did you have a landmark moment in your life that's like, you know, I was going there and it just it solidified where I was going or I was going there and and then it happened and you went? 
you turned right. You know, I think one of the things, and I think every professional goes through this, and I was early, like midpoint in my career, and I was working a retail job um, on a, as a side hustle because I think anyone in student affairs, and it's not only student affairs, but when you're first starting off with a master's degree, and my first job made $26,000, and um, I still had to pay student loans back. I still had to live. So I had got a part-time job, and there was a moment within like either the third or fourth year where I really thought about, should I go down this path of doing the retail and going into management for retail working for a large you know corporation and i really thought about it because they were courting me a little bit and i was only a part-time worker but they were thinking hey why don't you have a conversation with our regional manager about this there might be some opportunities make more money da, 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 da. and i really had to dig deep into my soul and really think about what i was passionate about mm-hmm. and for me being on a college campus working with students changing their lives was a seminal moment where i thought this is what I'm meant to be. This is where I'm supposed to be, which is on a college campus working with college students. Mm-hmm. It had such a profound effect on my life that I just couldn't imagine myself being anywhere else. That was one instance where I really remember. And then there are little moments along the way when I hear from a former student. I I still carry a note from a student that wrote me this handwritten note that just said, thank you for all everything that you've done. Um, you really changed my life and I really am so appreciative of that. And those are the moments that reinforce I made the right decision to stay in higher education, specifically student affairs. And so those are real moments. And then also when I look at some of our staff members and I just, they're just fond memories of building a team. Um, and also looking back on staff that I had the opportunity to work with and, um, you know, really humbled to be their leader for a short amount of time in history and period. And they still talk about that experience and their experiences working for me and with me. Those are great moments where I think I'm in the right place. Mm. Super. How about, Willie, advice to your younger self now that you've, you know, worked for multiple decades? Yeah. Would, uh, what would multiple you... decades. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> you? Um, and I've worked for more than those <laughs> than you. But any advice that you give you to your younger self? You know, I'd probably tell my younger self to chill out a little bit um, and take it easy and enjoy life. Um, I have a type A personality that was very, that it, I'm structured. I think I've loosened up a little bit as I've gotten a little bit older. And I think maybe the California weather and um, just being a little bit more chill has relaxed me a great bit. But I was always one to really treat people with respect and then also remember to, to create a great environment for people and just remember that. And so I would tell my younger self to have more fun, to loosen up a little bit, to laugh a whole heck of a lot more, and don't take things too personally. Gotcha. Yeah. Excellent. You know, and finally, just on a, you know, very deep level, you're black, I'm white. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, something that I don't know about your your, your experience? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I have multiple identities. So not only African-American, but I also identify as Asian-American. And the thing is, is that the experience for people of color can be very different. And especially for wherever you are in different parts of the country. Growing up in the South, I faced racism. And the thing is, is that racism is followed me throughout my career. I think that people need to understand that the black experience is not a monolithic experience, that everyone didn't grow up in certain ways. And then also to not make assumptions about people and just based on appearance. And I think so much of the world, there's a lot of assumptions. They see a person with with brown skin. They see 
I'm 6'5". I'm, I've got broad shoulders. The number of people who actually, when I, I and I got a full college, a full tuition scholarship to Mercer and people assumed that was based on athletics. I'm not athletic in any way, shape or form. Those microaggressions really are, you know, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. It's not one big, but it's those small things that sort of gnaw at you and really can be dehumanizing to a person of color because there's a lot of assumptions that people make just based on what you look like. And so for me, I've heard throughout my career, you know, people assume that I played football or basketball and that um, they're surprised when I, they say, oh, you're so articulate. Things like that, not helpful. I think that I'm articulate no matter who I am, you know? And so I don't know that people fully understand like the microaggressions that how that can be very hurtful for people. Mm. It's deep. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I haven't heard that expression before, microaggressions. Yeah. But it's a good description. Yeah. What's a little, it's the little, the little, um, you know, I worked for someone I'll share with you. I had a supervisor that um, looked at me and, and they were trying to be funny and they asked me what my street name was. And I looked at them and I was just like, excuse, what do you mean a street name? Mm. And they caught themselves, but that was a real moment for me where I turned around and walked away and I was just like, what in the world is going on? Mm. You know? And so, mm. you know, just mm. because I've had brown skin doesn't mean that I grew up in a gang neighborhood and not have a street name. Mm. Um, that was very insulting. And so that was for me a moment where I had to do some reflection, but then also realizing that wasn't about me, that was about him and him being really uncomfortable mm. um, and not really knowing how to deal with someone uh, like me. And that's on them. And I would encourage people when you have those moments to think about how much are you projecting on that other person? Mm. And honestly, the thing is, I'm just trying to live my life and be happy. Mm-hmm. The the black writer James Baldwin has yeah. recently come to my attention and I had not heard of him before. Oh, okay. Can you just give me some of your impressions about who this man was? He was a, pa- a powerful, oh yeah, absolutely, black writer, intellectual. Oh, absolutely, and and so much of his work, especially around um, issues of for, for gay black men and gay queer people, a lot of things. And at one point in time, he actually moved overseas and lived his life, I believe, in Paris. I would encourage anyone to read his stuff. Mm. It's it's James Baldwin. And so for a lot of people of color, queer people of color, we know James Baldwin and he is a, he's a hero for many of us because the experiences he talks about, especially navigating spaces that are predominantly white um, in a country that has a, a long history of being not very friendly to people of color or even LGBTQ people, it's been very interesting. So I think that one of the things that I would encourage people to do and your listeners is to think about, you know, the intersection of identities. And I think in this global world today, that so many of the people that you're going to interact with and come across, you don't know their full stories. So just based on appearances, you may think African-American, but you don't know that I may identify as LGBTQ, as Asian-American, as biracial, multiracial, and so much of that gets lost in just basic assumptions. Mm -hmm. Well, Vice Chancellor, thank you very much for letting us get to know you today. Really appreciate it and hope you'll come back sometime. Absolutely. Thank you very much.